If you're like me and you're not so great at planning ahead when it comes to travel, you have to try Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight is an app that helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute, up to seven days in advance. It's perfect for a spontaneous getaway or indulging in a little staycation. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So what are you waiting for? Get in on these killer last minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. Show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at The Rear. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, multimedia impresario, celebrated author, and Davidson baseball superfan, Ben Lindbergh. How you doing? <laughs> doing really well. Is Davidson doing really well? Davidson, Davidson upset J.B. Bukowskis in North Carolina on Friday. They became the first uh, NCAA tournament win in program history. Oh, and wow. this has also been a good weekend for HBCUs, who have typically not done that well in college baseball. Texas Southern from right here in Houston. They went two and Q, but they put a scare into both LSU and Rice. And Bethune Cookman is into the championship round of the Gainesville Regional. So uh, their first game against Florida will be over by the time most of you listen to this, but they win that. They'll have another game on, on Monday. So it's a, a good showing for for teams that have traditionally not done that well in college baseball. As long as Davidson's doing well, I'm yeah. doing well. Their yeah. success is foremost in my mind. Absolutely. Well, and I got that done for the in college 60 baseball seconds. update. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So we are going to do a, a Pujols episode largely before we get to Albert, though. Quick update on former Ringer MLB show guest Michael Lorenzen. And it's also an update on two-way players, which we care about very much. And when we had Lorenzen on, we talked to him because he was hitting. He was pinch hitting at times, despite being a reliever. And we asked him if he had any interest in playing in the field, becoming a true two-way player. He played center in college, and I think he expressed some interest, or he said he'd be up for it, and it might happen over the next couple days. If you need a reason to watch Reds games, it's possible that Michael Lorenzen will get into the field because Scott Shebler and Billy Hamilton are both nursing shoulder injuries. They're day-to-day, and so if the situation gets desperate, Michael Lorenzen might be run out there, and if so, we'll have to have him back on. I love this. I love this not only because I think it makes a lot of sense for Lorenzen because it's so much easier to play the outfield than it is to catch, for instance. And mm-hmm. like, what do the Reds have to have to lose by trying this? Like, they're finally sliding back to <laughs> a baseball game, but <laughs> that's know, about it. They might yeah. do that anyway. Like, yes. this is <laughs> yes. I, know, it's, right. I mean, like playing the outfield, and particularly for Lorenzen, who's done it his entire life. Like, it's not that hard. I, I doubt very much that he's going to be just a total sinkhole. And it's where, incredibly hard. Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly hard for you and me. But Michael Lorenzen <laughs> does this for a living. I just wanted to quote okay. other former ringer. Yeah. Yeah, show a- guest Ron Washington, at least movie version of Ron Washington. So you wanted to talk for a minute about John Lester's big day. Yeah, he uh, he picked a guy off. This is not sure the did. first pick off his, of his career, but it's his first pick off in two years. And man, to, so Tommy Pham <laughs> goes all the way past the cutout and 20 Anthony, foot lead. <laughs> Anthony Rizzo is calling for it like he's open in the corner wanting to shoot a three pointer. And Lester steps off and lollipops. And that's how far off the base Pham is. And like we saw the, the liberties that Francisco Lindor took during last mm-hmm. year's postseason. I'm 
I'm sure numerous others that I, I can't name did the same, but Lindor's the, the one that sticks out in my mind. Mm-hmm. How big an asshole do you feel like if you get picked off by John <laughs> Lester at this point? I mean, I don't think you should, right? I think if you are the first victim, you just kind of have to shrug it off because everything we've seen from John Lester over the last couple of years is that he's incapable of doing that. So I think it's only right to have kept testing him. And if he finally learns it, then I mean, credit to him. I'm, I'm happy for him. He clearly worked hard on this. It was something he couldn't do and he dedicated himself and he did it. But I don't blame Tommy Pham and I wouldn't feel bad if I were Tommy Pham. I don't know. There's the, so there's a theory that like if your strategy never fails catastrophically, you're not being aggressive enough with it. Like I think uh-huh. this is a, a Sam Miller thing that like if you've never missed your flight, you're leaving yes. for the airport too early, which I think is just a preposterous way of looking at the world because <laughs> it's really difficult to rebook a flight. And then, you know, you feel like you feel like you just got picked off by John Lester. But anyway, <laughs> like, I don't know. I think there's there's a strong social pressure not to test this, not to be. It's like the the joke about the, the two guys in the woods and the bear and they're running away from a bear. And one guy stops off to put on his running shoes. And he says, mm-hmm. you're not going to. The other guy says, you're not going to outrun the bear. And the guy says, I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun you. <laughs> right. Like you can't be the one guy who got picked off by John Lester. <laughs> I guess this brings an end to the era of talking about John Lester's inability to make pickoff throws, because really, he just had to do it one to get us all to shut up, and and now he has. So no, no he hasn't because we're talking about it on the podcast. <laughs> well, we're doing yeah. the, We haven't talked about John Lester's pickoffs all year. <laughs> well, we're talking about his successful pickoff now, and I still am convinced that players didn't exploit this weakness as much as they could have and should have. I know that runners on the whole were unsuccessful against him even during the period when he failed to demonstrate he could do this because he held them on in other ways. He was quick to the plate. His catchers could throw. They had quick pop times. They were accurate. So it wasn't easy to steal off Lester. And even this year, before he made that pickoff throw, he'd been extremely successful at getting runners thrown out once they did attempt to steal. So I know he was doing a lot of things that helped him control the running game, even when he wasn't throwing over to first. But I still thought that runners were not fully exploiting his inability to throw over because you did see them dancing off first and getting farther and farther. And we saw that last year in the playoffs. And We kept talking about, is some team really going to run wild and test John Lester? And they never really did. They kept taking longer leads than you would see against the typical pitcher, but they still acted as if he could throw to first. And if he stepped off and motioned that he was going to throw back to first, they would dutifully go back to the base, even though it was all a feint at the time. It was all an act and pantomime. So still seemed to me that players were overly bound by tradition, I guess, or or by ingrained habit, which is that, you know, you can't like you've got a lefty pitcher it feels weird to do that right i think that's what it was so now i guess we can stop talking about it for good he has demonstrated that he can do it except to say this base dealers are six for 14 off lester this year that's 43 percent. like that's like prime running on pudge rodriguez numbers like so was this all a con (laughs) like did he just tank the 2015 (laughs) season to get people to run in the house that it was all a long con and he was just biting 
his time, but I think probably we would have seen him break out the pickup throw in the World Series, right? I'm going to look up Andy <laughs> If Pettit's he was numbers. just waiting for the right moment, I don't think it was a, a game in early June with uh, Tommy Pham leading off first base. I think he's been in bigger games at bigger moments when he would have done it. But yeah, maybe he is reaping some rewards now. It kind of like it kind of worked in the World Series because mm-hmm. Rajai Davis ran on him pretty well, but like Ramirez yeah. and Lindor, who are usually pretty good base stealers, just couldn't figure him out. Yeah, well, I still thought they were being a little too tentative, but hey, I've never been yeah. on a baseball field at that level, so I don't know what it would be like. So base stealers were more successful in every single season of Andy Pettit's career than they have been against Lester so far in 2017. Fun fact. All right. So we're going to talk about Albert Pujols. Now, you wrote a big retrospective story on the occasion of Pujols' 600th home run, which he had the ninth most home runs before he hit that home run. He still has the ninth most home runs. You've got 10 (laughs) fingers, too. You know how this works. (laughs) Yes, but we all like round numbers. And so we're celebrating Pujols because he has uh, reached a threshold that not many hitters have reached. And you wrote a story. You looked back at some of his earlier milestone homers. Was there anything? that you found from that trip down memory lane that you had forgotten or that stood out to you? So a couple things, like I'd sort of written off Pujols, not written him off, but like didn't realize how good he had been in the, it was the 04, 06, and 11 postseasons because I just, I thought that one home run off Brad Lidge was kind of overrated just because, I mean, the Cardinals lost that series in mm-hmm. very short order afterwards, but like he, he came up huge in the postseason over and over again, and the the other thing that sort of came back to me or the only thing that I, I think I really discovered rather than just looking back and, and really grappling with his career stats is embedded in the story is a, a YouTube clip of his first career home run. His thighs were enormous <laughs> and like you could see like the muscle bulging out of his pants. And these are mm-hmm. like turn of the century baggy pants. This is when yeah. it was acceptable for everybody to wear Jamie Moyer pants. And they're still pretty enormous. I mean, it's not man, all muscle like, anymore. But (laughs) right. But this was a huge guy, even when he was like supposed to be a junior in college. Yeah. So last year we did a retrospective episode. We talked to people from their respective organizations about Jose Altuve and Mookie Betts and went back to the beginning. And what were they like? And when did people know they were going to be great? We're going to do the same thing now for Pujols. Of course, Pujols was drafted in the 13th round with the 402nd overall pick of the 1999 amateur draft. One pick behind Alfredo Amezaga. Even Alfredo Amezaga is a great pick for the 13th round, let alone Albert Pujols. So why wasn't he picked earlier? How did he get so great? We're about to find out. Our guest today has been working for the Cardinals in some capacity since, I think, 1979, when he started part-time as a teenager. He's held just about every position it's possible to hold in the baseball operations department since then, and in other departments, too. He is currently the director of baseball administration, but back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when Albert Pujols was drafted and developed, he was working in player development. His name is John Vooch. Hey, John. Hi, how are you doing? We're good. So we wanted to get the Pujols origin story from someone who was around at the time. So can you tell us the first time you heard the name or the first time you were aware of him as a player? Well, the first time I heard the name was uh, shortly prior to the draft in 99. Uh, our scouts obviously liked him. Uh, actually, our kind of our senior scouts, Mo and, and Mike Roberts, they liked him even more than the area scout did. But everybody who saw him prior to the draft really loved the bat. 
you know, clearly nobody envisioned a, a Hall of Fame career for him, but, you know, he was an intriguing guy. And then, then after that, you know, obviously we took him in the draft and, and you know, he was a guy that, that you know, we really liked. Uh, signability ended up being a little bit of an issue for him. Uh, he didn't sign, ended up signing him until the middle of August after uh, he played in the collegiate summer league. And so we signed him actually to a contract for the 2000 season. So how much, I mean, the Pujols, origin story involves the Rays obviously had a scout who was really on him and he was right in the Royals back backyard and they didn't take him they were scared off by the body or whatever how much does having a guy like that relatively close to the team help you identify a player who other teams might overlook or does every team sort of cover the same areas and and uh, there's not a whole lot of regional advantage yeah, no, I don't think it was so much a matter that he was he was close to us in St. Louis. I think it really was just you know good scouting on the part of our area scout to, to bring him to our attention, and then our cross checkers and and scouting director really liked him. So I think you know it really was something that I think, like you said, I think it was some of the things that scared teams off may have been you know determining what defensive position he might play, uh, conditioning might have been a bit of it, but. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think just our guys liked him a little bit better than than some of the other teams. And what do you expect out of a, in general, out of a 13th round pick? Because that's, you know, that's so far down the the draft that, you know, I don't, most fans probably don't even follow the draft that far. Right, right. No, and and it's funny because really the first time I saw him personally play was during our uh, instructional league camp and at the end of the 99 season, we were having organizational meetings down in Jupiter, Florida. And so the first time I saw him there, he was taking BP. And then, you know, it's, it's the old cliche. And it, it, in this case, it really was true. The ball sounded different coming off his bat. And so, yeah, I remember telling one of our scouts then, it's like, this is our 13th round pick. I can't wait to see the 12 guys we like better than him. So uh, <laughs> it was really, you know, he was a, you know, an incredible guy right from the start. So what was your role at the time exactly? I think your title was assistant of player development. What did that entail? Um, really just kind of uh, working with our, our player development department, you know, some of the administrative part of it, some minor input into the transactions, things like that. Mike Jorgensen was actually our farm director at the time. And so kind of really whatever Jorgie needed to have done, you know, myself and Scott Smolzinski would help him with that. Mm-hmm. And so how often would you see someone like Pujols or would you just be getting reports from people who saw him after every game, that kind of thing, seeing video as it came in? Yeah, primarily, you know, primarily game reports we would see every day doing the game reports is one of my, my responsibilities at the time. So I was, you know, seeing him, seeing all the reports on him every day. Uh, fortunately, Peoria is only about a two and a half hour drive from St. Louis. So that was always a pretty accessible trip to make. And so I myself and a couple of other people from the office would go up there a few times. And so got to see him play live as well. And then, you know, it was clear that he was one of those guys that was, was better than anybody else on the field. And so I think we were fortunate in that regard. And for example, I remember giving my Cubs, my son's Cub Scout then and their parents a tour of the stadium. And I kind of had my organizational board with all the names on the board. And you know, somebody asked me to pick out a name on the board and then, you know, Pools was the one that, that kind of stood out. So, I mean, pretty much right off the bat, it was clear that, that he, you know, this was a special talent. I mean, again, you know, nobody, even in the, the one year he played in the minor leagues, nobody envisioned him as a Hall of Famer at that point. But but certainly it was clear that he was, he was a unique talent. There are a lot of guys who get to the majors after one year in the minor leagues, but a lot of them are first rounders, big college guys. Very rarely do you see a 13th rounder out of a junior college, even make it up to triple a after his first year in the minor leagues and, or even just move through the system that quickly. So how much did you have to, I guess, break precedent with the way that you would ordinarily handle a player with Pujols background, I guess. And was it that obvious from the start that you had just sort of had to throw that out the window. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was obvious that he was he was really an unusual talent. I mean, I really I give Mike Jorgensen a, a lot of credit on this though, because he was he was the farm director at the time. Uh, you know, even making a full season club right out of spring training in 2000, I mean, he hadn't played 
any affiliated ball prior to that, besides uh, instructional league. And so he came into spring training of 2000 and had a really good camp, was extremely coachable, really was taking his conditioning seriously, and then really you know, showed a tremendous work ethic and had a great spring, made the Peoria club out of spring training. But then, you know, Jorge, you know, midway through the season, I guess it was actually in August, uh, decided to move him up to our high A club right away. And then, you know, and during that time, I, I, one of the things I remember Jorge was talking about that, that other teams, you know, when we were starting to get close to the trade deadline in July, teams were already starting to sniff around about him. And, and fortunately, Jorge was, was a big proponent of saying, Hey, you know, we'll deal some other guys. And then we actually ended up trading some guys that were higher draft picks than Pujols and some of the trades that we made, but you know, Jordan was pretty quick to recognize that that Pools would be a guy that should be off limits as far as dealing. And then mm-hmm. uh, late, late in the year, our Memphis club looked like it was going to make the playoffs, and they kind of got a double whammy as far as their outfielders go. Where we had one guy that got called up to the big leagues, uh, Thomas Howard. I think it was uh, then Ernie Young ended up going to play on the Olympic team, so they lost two outfielders uh, right at the end of the season, and it became apparent they were going to make the postseason. And you know, the, the kind of year Pools had had, he had played third base really the entire year, uh, but Jorge felt like he had developed enough athletically to move to the outfield. And, and so Galen Pitts, our manager at, at AAA, got him into a few games at the end of the season in left field and showed that he could, could handle the position defensively. And as it turned out, uh, he capped off that year, hit, hit a walk-off home run to win the Pacific Coast League Championship. So he's and always had a player for the dramatic. Yeah. And even going back to the draft, when you have a player whom your team likes better than every other organization, or maybe you've seen him more often, or you have an area scout who's really advocating for him, how do you decide when to pull the trigger? Because, I mean, did you have any idea if we don't take Pujols with the 13th round pick, he'll be snapped up by this other team? Or are you just doing some guesswork and just saying this is where he is on our board? And for all we know, he could fall another five picks, but we just don't want to risk it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we knew that there weren't a ton of teams that were were big on him. So it was something where we knew we didn't have it. We, you know, if, we, if we knew what he was going to turn out to be, he certainly would have gone in the first round with a play on one one, whoever was, was to converse that year. But, but I mean, you know, we liked him, you know, but it was something where I think we felt like, you know, once it started to get to that point of the draft that somebody might take a chance because the, the bat was really the tool at that time that really stood out. He was playing shortstop in junior college. So, you know, and, and you know, everybody plays shortstop in junior college or high school. And then, you know, so I think the question was, you know, where was he going to play defensively? And then, you know, the, the, the body, he was not, he was not nearly the shape then that he, that he got into really in that first year of minor league ball. So, you know, I think we felt like, I think we felt comfortable that the first top 10 rounds, he probably wasn't going to go there, but anytime after that, you know, there might've been another club to take him. And I think really just the, the feeling was the bat was, even if he, if nothing else developed, you know, he had an interesting enough bat to, to take him at that point. You talked about signability. This was before the hard bonus caps and the the slotting, and so this there was a little bit of, of wild west to to draft bonuses. And obviously, you know, you don't want to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a thirteenth round pick. But how much has the bonus system changed the calculus of when you chase guys who might have signability concerns and try to bet on that one big tool versus you know letting them pass and trying to to make the math work somewhere else. Yeah, well, obviously, with the, the the current signing rules, the the signability becomes. I mean, you have to know the signability almost down to the exact dollar because it's it's kind of like a Rubik's cube or jigsaw puzzle where you're trying to to make sure that you have enough money to to get right into the top of that that amount of money that you're allotted. So there was a little bit of flexibility, and in, in, in Albert's case, yeah, you know, he was playing that in that in the summer league. So I think the, the original dollar amount that we were planning to spend for him uh, went up the way he played over the summer, and then. 
Yeah, I think Mo, I'm not 100% sure, but I think Mo was actually the one that ended up negotiating the deal and then got him done kind of right before the deadline that we had to sign. We didn't sign him until mid-August. And so I think any, any later than that, then he would have gone back to school or I guess as a junior, I'm not sure if he's going to go to junior college and we would have had, back then you had the draft and follow rules. So might have been able to still have signability the following year or if he was going to go to a four-year school. I can't remember for sure on that, but had he gone to a four-year school, we would have lost the rights to him. If he would have gone back to a junior college for the next year, we would have retained his rights up until the next draft. Mm. And I know that teams often go back and they review their drafts and they see what worked and what didn't, and you can learn a lot from your picks that didn't work out. I'm sure you can also learn something from picks that maybe worked out even better than you expected. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, if anyone had actually known how good Pujols was, he would have gone much, much earlier. So it's a, it's a successful pick for the Cardinals, but at the same time, I guess it's, it's almost a miss in that, you know, you're missing where you should pick someone like Pujols if you actually knew how good he would turn out to be. Is there any kind of lesson you can learn from looking in retrospect at Pujols' amateur career or his skill set at the time that you can use to recognize undervalued players in the future? Or is he just such a unicorn that you just kind of throw your hands up and say that, you know, it's not as if there's a, a Pujols lurking in every draft that you could somehow find. He's just a, a once in a decade type of player. Yeah, I, th- I think it's more the latter. I think it is sort of a he was sort of a freakish talent that that you know happened to, to last that long in the draft. I and mean, I think now the one big thing is obviously prior at that time we weren't nearly as, as much into the analytics side of things. Uh, yeah. Our, our, our uh, baseball development department now is much more. You know, we have a very robust uh, uh, baseball development department now. That that so you know those kind of players would be less likely to slip through the cracks. But I say that, and then you know, I think back to 13th round is when we took Matt Carpenter as well. So we've had good success in the 13th round. So. How much data would there be on a modern-day equivalent of Pujols? Well, I mean, that's that's something that our, that our uh, analytics group, they, you know, they do a lot of work really on, on all levels of baseball. And you know, I think back years ago, I mean, even Division Three, we had uh, we got Matt Adams out of a Division Three school. So, you know, we have... Uh, you know, really, you know, our analytics guys are good at really identifying talent, no matter where they are, as far as schools are. So I know you said that the, the cross trackers and some of the higher ups were high on Pujols as well. But what happened to the area scout who uh, who first identified him? Did he dine out on that for the rest of his career? Yeah, uh, Dave Carrick was our area scout actually, who, who like uh, signed him and, and or actually had us draft him. And Dave, I think, spent several more years with the organization and then uh, isn't with us anymore right now. But uh, but. Yeah, it was it was really it was really kind of an organizational effort. I mean, there were a lot, pretty much everybody that saw him liked him, and you know, like I said, it turned out turned out well that we took him where we did. All right, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more from John. Today's episode is brought to you by SeatGeek, the smartest and easiest way to get tickets to every MLB game. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. And SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing the best plays of the year in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. It's the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. If you get it too, you can be anywhere. With just a few taps, instantly find seats. You can use SeatGeek to get tickets for the next stop on the Pujols Milestone Tour. It's got 
nine more homers to catch Semi Sosa, 12 more to catch Jim Tomey. But SeatGeek doesn't just end with sports. It also has plenty of concert, comedy, and theater tickets available. And whatever event you're attending, SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Best of all, Ringer MLB show listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code RINGERMLB, that's all one word, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code RINGERMLB today. I also want to tell you about our other sponsor, Naked Wines. My fiance has never been so happy about a podcast sponsor. I'm not sure she's ever been as happy to be marrying me because there's nothing like dining al fresco on a cool summer night with a great glass of wine, but finding new wines to try can be so overwhelming, especially when you're at the store and you're faced with aisles of choices. Thankfully, NakedWines.com offers exclusive wines that you can't find anywhere else, making it easy to discover something new and delicious all the time. Not to mention their unique business model connects everyday wine drinkers and winemakers more closely than ever before. Four, granting you access to more than 400 limited production wines, each one a discovery, the passion project of an experienced artisan who makes wines thanks to your support. Better yet, NakedWines.com removes a huge chunk of costs that, in a traditional wine business, would typically be passed on to you, so you save up to 60% on the wines you love. Plus, the winemaker gets to spend more time in the vineyard and less in the office, which means the wines taste better. And with over 2 million customer reviews, you can easily determine which wine is right for you. And here's the deal, you can get $100 off your first order. Try 12 of NakedWine.com favorites for only $79. Just visit nakedwines.com slash MLB to claim this offer. Again, that's nakedwines.com slash MLB. All right, let's get back to our Pujols conversation with John Vooch of the Cardinals. What were you thinking at the time as he was being jumped up very quickly? I know teams are always worried about rushing players, and it's rare to see someone go from high A to triple A and then make their major league debut after playing, you know, three games in triple A and, and nothing else above high A. Was there a lot of hesitation about that at the time, or was everyone pretty much on the same page as far as he's just such a freakish talent that he can handle this. Yeah. Well, he, he's done so well that first year in the minor leagues that he earned a, you know, an opportunity to come to big league camp, which that's, that's fairly unusual in itself. But then mm-hmm. he had such a good spring that, that it really kind of forced his way onto the club. And it's funny. I mean, there's, there's sort of this old wives tale like, that floats around St. Louis that when Bobby Bonilla hurt his hamstring, that was the only reason they made the opening day roster. But, but really it was a, a three-way competition between Pujols, John Mabry, who's our, our major league hitting coach right now and Bernard Gilkey. And, Pools actually had made the club already. And then when the decision was made to DL Bonilla, that's when Mabry ended up getting added to the roster. But you know, for some reason, there's always a connection made between Pujols and Bonilla, but really it was Mabry and Bonilla that, that kind of uh, worked out that way. But Pujols was already on the club. And really the Bonilla injury had nothing to do with, with Albert making the club. And then obviously you know, the rest after that in 2001 was history. Um, yeah. You know, it's something where, you know, you kind of, you know, the one thing you, you, know, you knew if you, if you put him on the opening day roster that, that he starts that, that clock and he finishes a year with, with one year of major league service. And then, you know, ideally, you know, six years down the road, he's going to end have exactly six years, which would have made him eligible for free agency. But, but, you know, the philosophy was always, you know, if this is the best guy to make the club and he's going to help the team, you know, then, then he needs to be a guy on the roster. And so it was, it was something that you, you looked at and you were aware of, but, but you're really with the spring he had. And, you know, it, it turned out to be important because that, that 2001 season was a pretty competitive year. And, you know, every game he was there playing in St. Louis, you know, that was that was vital to us making the postseason that year. 
Yeah. And how much has the process of deciding whether a player is ready to be promoted either up a minor league level or to the majors, how much has that changed since 16, 17 years ago, the time we're talking about now that you've got, you know, track men at every level and you have a lot more data at your disposal. You could look at a small sample and tell whether a, a guy is hitting the ball a certain way more so than you could have in the past. Or has that changed things or was it always mostly coming down to the opinion of people who are seeing him and talking to him and know how he's handling it, not only from a performance standpoint, but also psychologically? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's changed somewhat. I, I think we do use kind of the analytic side of it and the data side of it more now than we did back then. You know, in Pujols' case, I think no, you know, no matter what measure you would have used, it was clear that every league he was playing in, he was he was better than everybody else in the league. So even though he, yeah. kind of, you know, I'd say about a half a month in, in high A, you know, when the, when the opportunity came at AAA, he was sort of the clear clear cut choice. So to what extent, like this is a, a narrative that we see a lot, I think just because people need something to write and talk about during spring training, but to what extent can somebody, particularly somebody like Pujols with like a hundred plate appearances ever above low A, play his way onto the roster? Because you see guys that go into spring training in major league camp who the team has no, no intention of, of putting on the big league roster opening day, no matter what they do. So how much of a chance does somebody like that have of making the roster? If they're if they're not as good as pools, yeah. I mean, I think I think normally you try not to make your decisions based on what happens in spring training because it is a relatively small sample size. A lot of times, you know, especially guys who aren't projected to make the roster, they might be taking their at bats against guys that are going to be playing in AAA and AA because they're playing at the end of the game in spring training, and so you know the players they're playing against maybe minor league players as well. So you try not to, to overreact to what happens in the spring, but. You know, in the case of Pujols, it was not everything he was doing was showing that that he you know he was just extremely precocious and and that that he was ready and it was something that you know you, you normally try not to overreact to what happens in spring training but in his case you know anybody that saw him that year you know, and that, in fact Mark McGuire was still on the team at that time and he was he was lobbying Tony Lewis, our manager to to take Pujols with us and and you know, like I said he he earned a spot on the club that that spring and what were the makeup reports like or, or- what was it about his personality or his attitude that would maybe set him apart from another young player who is also very talented, but maybe would be deemed not to be ready for other reasons? Yeah, I, th- I think with Albert, it was it was part of it was the work ethic. I mean, he was you know the the prototypical you know first guy to the ballpark and and you know had an extremely good work ethic. You know, he started taking his conditioning very seriously because that was you know I think that was one of the things that was a concern to people back you know in '99, and then when he came into the minor league camp in 2000 and then, you know, carried that forward into the big league camp in 2001, you know, he just kept getting himself in better and better shape. And you know, it was very coachable, very receptive to instruction and, and it was very good at retaining instruction. So, I mean, you know, he didn't spend much time in the minor leagues, but, but the time he did spend with our managers and coaches, you know, he turned into a, to a, a much better player based on, on what he learned there and then what he applied. And then the big thing for him really, you know, the, the bat was always there, but he, he became really a, a pretty good defensive player. And then, and, and, you know, he's, he's known more for playing first base for us, but those first couple of years, you know, he, he played third base. He played a pretty good third base. He had a strong arm, good hands. And, and, you know, I think he could have played third base at the big league level for at least several years. And then obviously as he got you know, a little bit older and, and bigger and stronger, you know, he, he ended up becoming a very good defensive first baseman. But you know, I think, you know, he took all parts of his game seriously. And I think that's a lot of times when guys are very good hitters, that's all they want to work on. And in Albert's case, you know, he knew his bat was solid and you know, he obviously still worked on his hitting, but, 
but he knew how important it was to become a good defensive player, how important it was to learn how to run the base as well. And, and so he worked a lot on, you know, he, he was smart enough to work on his weaknesses rather than just to only focus on a string. Yeah, it's 2007, I think, if you just go by the stats, is the best defensive season by a first baseman ever, which, you know, huh. I don't know how much to stock to put into one season of defensive stats, but he is like far and away better by any metric that's available for, for that time. He's, I mean, and, and you know, why not? Because like that's just <laughs> perfectly in keeping with, with, uh, Pujols' reputation. Yeah, but. well, I think right. Everyone remembers him as one of the best hitters of all time in, during that period. But he was a good base runner too, and and a really good defender also. So he was just kind of an all around <laughs> amazing player. No, oh, exactly. And it's funny because you know one of the, one of my one of my roles uh, during that time was was working on salary arbitration. At one point, after his after his third season in the big leagues, I was like, we can go to arbitration with them, and you know, that was that was a challenging case to put together as to, as to why, you know, why Albert wasn't worth what he was asking for. You know, I mean, I, I, I was competitive enough that I thought we had a decent chance to win, but uh, but you know, fortunately, we ended up settling before uh, before we had to go. Yeah, so much of arbitration is based on precedent, right? So how do you, how do you even find a precedent for a guy like that? No, exactly, and that was the thing. Even even our offer to him would have been the highest paid first time arbitration eligible player and so that was sort of our thing and we, we were kind of one of the things we were our, our exhibits were looking at like comparing the salary he was looking for was equal to beltron plus berkman combined i think it was a third outfield like all three of those outfielders combined and you know so that was it, it was it would have been a fascinating case to go on i mean I, obviously i'm glad and it turned out great for everybody involved that we, we signed him to the long-term deal and, and yeah but we were literally pulling into the parking garage at the airport to, to fly out to phoenix for the hearing when, when the when the case settled, but it was it was it was a, a, an interesting case to work on. It would have been a lot of fun to go on, but but obviously, you know, it, it, no matter no matter how complimentary we would have been in the arbitration hearing, it's it's not it's always an adversarial process, and it, and it always ends up with some bruised feelings. And so it, it's clearly was far better that we that we got the deal done, you know, before the before the hearing. So I wanted to ask, and Ben brought up makeup, and you said that McGuire was lobbying him for to make the team as a rookie. And this is a during a stretch of like five to seven years where not only Pujols comes up as, at a young age, but uh, J.D. Drew, Rick Ankiel, Yadier Molina all sort of shoot through the minor leagues and wind up contributing at a very young age. So how much do you worry about not just the ability to contribute on the field, but how well you think the player's going to fit in with the clubhouse? Or is that something you just sort of lean on the manager? to handle yeah and, and i think at the time you know tony was the manager and i think he had a a, a very you know, strong strong uh, pulse of the clubhouse as, as to how he would fit in and then you know albert was you know he was a place that he was clearly well well above his you know the guys that it would normally be you know a first-year player making the club but but i think albert you know fit in well with the club you know i think i think sometimes guys would get mad because he'd get so frustrated every time he made him out and, and Everybody's like, hey guys, you know, it's, it's not it's not that easy. Yeah, it's easy for Albert, but but you know, I think they would get frustrated when when he would get frustrated sometimes. But no, he was you know in his early years, you know, he he fit in well with the club. He, you know, he he kind of recognized his role and and you know he, he leaned on a lot of the veterans for for advice and then kind of learned. You know, he quickly became a leader. Uh, you know, a couple of years into his career and, and at a very young age. But I think that that first year or two, I think he kind of leaned on the veterans and then kind of learned how to lead from the veteran guys that were there. 
I don't know whether you've gone back at all and looked at those early scouting reports, but do you remember when the scouting reports sort of started to match what would actually become his performance? Like, do you have any recollection of what the amateur reports projected for him, what the early pro reports projected at any point before he became the best player in baseball? Was he projected to become the best player in baseball or was it always a surprise? Um, I mean, you know, the, the, the pro reports, the amateur reports, I don't remember a whole lot because I wasn't as involved with the draft at that time. So mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I wasn't reading every individual report. Just, I, you know, I obviously knew that we liked him. And, I, and then again, when you know, he went straight to instructional league and, and, you know, seeing him down there for the first time, he was, it was definitely the talk of instructional league. But, uh, you know, again, I don't think anybody was projecting a Hall of Fame career for him at that point. But when he was playing in 2000, I mean, it was my league camp in 2000. And then, you know, seeing him play at Peoria and, and it was, I mean, he, he quickly became, one of our pretty, like I said, uh, our farm director at the time, Georgie was, was kind of saying, look, let's, let, you know, we're not, don't move this guy. Let's, let's, we're, we're keeping him. And so I think he, he had a strong feeling that this was going to be a very, very good player. And again, you know, even, even the first year or two of his major league career, we didn't necessarily see him as a hall of famer, but we knew he was a very, very good player that, that, you know, the way he came out of the gate in 2001 as a major league player, he was going to be a very good player. And it's just a matter of, of staying healthy. And then, you know, clearly he was a very, very consistent player and, and, you know, put up a lot of good years for us. Yeah. Is there anything that surprises you, I guess, about how he matured, how he aged, you know, whether it was at his peak or, or now in his late thirties, I guess, you know, if you could look back to his first couple of years in the big leagues, is there any one aspect of his game that you wouldn't have seen coming or you would have expected him to age differently in some way? No, I not, not really. I mean, it's just something where I think he's, Really, I think it's just a product of, of his. He's just a tenacious worker. He's, he's you know, I think he, I, I think that to me, the one thing that was so amazing was just his, his year to year, you know, year to year and game to game consistency. Yeah. It seems like he rarely went, went into a slump. He really, you know, he, he never had a bad year for us. <laughs> and, you know, so I think, I think it was just, I think that's really all kind of driven from the way he works and the way he, you know, he was very meticulous about his swing and, and just, you know, I think, so I think that's something that I think really, you know, as an amateur, I think, and I, I think really his 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 work ethic really developed that first year in the minor leagues in 2000. I think he he learned how to to really become a professional and and you know I think really you know he got good coaching, but I think you know most virtually you know virtually all of it is, is really the product of his his own work. Yeah, that, and obviously a lot of natural ability. Right. Yeah, that's kind of you know you're working in player development. Do you have to develop a player like Pujols? I mean, you know, is there is there any organization that could have ruined Albert Pujols or, you know, if he had been drafted. Well, there's absolutely an organization <laughs> I mean, out there that could have ruined Yeah, I mean, Albert there are Pujols. teams that seem to have, you know, pretty lousy track records, comparatively speaking, when it comes to developing players. But when you have an inner circle, all-time talent like this, I mean, do you think that the organization he ended up with mattered? Which is not to you know, disparage the work of the people who helped him along the way, but maybe just when a player is that talented, it it almost doesn't matter where he ends up. He's going to get there. You know, he could be blocked by a a player at the big league level on certain teams and not on others and maybe take a little longer to get there, that sort of thing. But do you think it matters where someone like Albert Pujols gets drafted and and gets developed? Well, I mean, it's sort of self-serving for us to say that, you know, (laughs) I think being with the Cardinals was an advantage for him, but I, I, you know, but wait, wait, we did have a lot of really, really good instructors. I mean, yeah. George Kissel was our, our longtime field coordinator. You know, he spent some time with Albert and, and you know, and then, you know, our, his managers that he had along the way, our, our roving instructors. So, I, you know, he did get, 
a lot of good instruction. I mean, you know, the hitting part of it, I think a lot of that is, is, is natural God given and, and a product of hard work, but you know, there were, there were some tweaks that were made and, and he was very, he was always very receptive to coaching. He was always very coachable. I think the defensive part of the game, I think really did improve a lot mm-hmm. uh, in that year in the minor leagues. He, you know, he played a lot of third base, which I think that really softened up his hands, uh, which enabled him then when he moved over to first base, you know, he had the hands of a third baseman playing first base. And so I think, you know, so I think that part of it worked well. You know, I mean, would he have been a, a Hall of Famer with another organization? I mean, I, I, it's hard to say he wouldn't have been, but you know, I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I know he did get a lot of good instruction from our, our managers and coaches along the way. And then, you know, and obviously, as with any player, you know, the vast majority of the credit goes to the player himself. Mm-hmm. So when the, the time came after 11 years with the organization to cut ties and let him walk to L.A., was it? I mean, what can you tell tell us about what that decision was like? Was it just we don't we know we can't match the money that we think he's going to make, or was there more complicated calculation put into that? Yeah, I mean, I, I really wasn't. Yeah, you know, that was a, a decision and a negotiation that was that was you know handled far above above the area that I was working in at the time. I was I was a farm director that, at that time, so I was I was more focused on what was going on on the minor league side. But clearly, you know. You know, it was a decision that I think you know ended up working out well for for everyone involved, for you know for Albert and for the, the Cardinals, and you know as far as as far as you know how the decision worked out. I mean, that's something that I, I really was not involved with that negotiation, and so I, I would be speculating to to say you know what what caused the decision to go one way or the other on that. Mm-hmm. But is it difficult, you know, watching somebody like that go, even if not passing judgment one way or another on on the decision to let him walk, but, you know, just knowing what he's meant to the organization, you know, how does that feel as a, a longtime member of the Cardinals organization yourself when you see a player like that go, even if you might think it's a smart baseball decision? Sure. No, I mean, on, on, on one level, you know, kind of on the on the family, I, I was born and raised in St. Louis. I grew up as a Cardinal fan, but I was too young to, to have seen Stan Musial play. So, you know, in some regards, it would have been been great to have him finish his career here and sort of be our generation's Stan Musial, you know, but, but obviously, you know, that, that didn't happen. And, you know, there were, I think there were a lot of, a lot of things that went into that decision, but, but yeah, I mean, on a, on a purely fan driven level, I, I could see where from, from that perspective, it would have been, been great to have him play his entire year career with the Cardinals. Yeah. And if we could do an alternate history where Pujols never exists or a different organization drafts him, how do you think those years, that decade plus that he was with the Cardinals, were there any larger changes that you think happened because Pujols was there? I mean, obviously, you know, it would be tough to, to have those teams be just as good without one of the best players ever on them. But was there any freedom, I guess, to to operate that you had based on the fact that you could count on Pujols to be a eight, nine, ten win player year in, year out for a decade without making a whole lot of money early on in that career? Were there just moves that couldn't have been made or or any different philosophy when it came to promoting from within or looking outside the organization that, you know, having an all-time superstar like that on your roster that you can count on frees you up to to do other things that you might not be able to do otherwise? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's something where really, I think any any team that has success over a long period of time that has a player of that caliber, I think if you take him out of the equation, I think it, it certainly would have a dramatic effect. And, you know, I, I, would, I would think with the people that had in charge of the organization at the time that we would have, you know, certainly done things differently if, did we not, if we didn't have an Albert Pujols. But, but yeah, I mean, he was he was such a consistent player and, and, and it's something where it, it's hard to envision what we would have had to do because, you know, he was there and, and that was something that we didn't have to, you know, fortunately he was so consistent that we didn't have to worry about him year in, year out. And so, you know, definitely what we would have had to do if we didn't have him. I, I don't know that I don't know if I can wrap my head around that, what we would have done without him. Yeah. 
and and so you've been in the game for for decades when you look back at all the players you've seen and scouted and had a hand in drafting or, or developing do you think of him as this is the best player i've ever seen will ever see do you still hope every year you know we're gonna get the next Pujols, we're gonna get the next guy who is just as good i mean the cardinals obviously have been very successful in the post Pujols era too but when you look back at all the thousands of players you've seen come up does he stand out as you know i'll never see a phenomenon like this happen again yeah i mean i, I think it's the kind of guy you know and you always hope that, you know every player is draft draft with you know with, with some, but you know Know, some reason behind taking that player and then hoping that that he maximizes his potential but but yeah it's going to be going to be hard to find somebody to come close to what albert accomplished and, and you know you never you never want to be satisfied you know, i've seen that's the best i'll ever see because you always you never know who the next player you're going to draft the next player is going to get developed and, yeah you now you hope that you know you can find another hall of fame player and i mean i remember you know like oscar Tavares when he was coming through our system you know he wasn't quite albert but he was he was probably the the next best hitter i had ever seen come through our system and so you're always hoping to find that caliber of player, but yeah, I mean, if if Albert ends up being the best player that I've ever seen come through our system, that's that's not that's not too bad of <laughs> not too bad of a guy to have be the best. Yeah, so. Right, I can't even imagine. Like you gotta just feel giddy. I I would assume like his rookie year when you realize that he's already among the best players in baseball and he's twenty years old or twenty one years old at that point, and you know that you've got him for a long time on a you know affordable contract, and he's only going to get better than that. I mean, that just must be the best feeling if you're running a team and suddenly Albert Pujols falls into your lap. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, clearly, clearly I wasn't running the team at that time, but yeah, but even being part of, it, of the organization at that point and seeing him come through and then, you know, doing what he did. I mean, again, you know, we, we felt that he was going to be a very good player, but you know, it, it'd be hard for us to say that, that we saw a hall of famer coming at that point. Yeah. All right. Well, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your memories. I love hearing stories about players before they became the players we know, especially if it's an interesting origin story like Pujols, where the player was not, you know, a Bryce Harper type who was on Sports Illustrated covers when he was 16, but he kind of came out of nowhere and turned out to be the best player in baseball. So we appreciate your uh, time and, and recollections. Thanks, John. Right, thank you very much for having me. All right. Do you have any estimates for the final tally of Albert Pujols' career home runs? So, so he signed through 2021, which is yes. this season plus four more. Right. I can't imagine he's going to retire before then. I can't imagine he gets he makes any significant headway after that either. Mm-hmm. Um, even if he doesn't just retire at the end of the contract. Yeah. I mean, he's um, been averaging, you know, 30 ish home yeah, runs, even, even as he's declined as a player in all respects, really, yeah, he's his, still hitting his, home runs. Of course, the record home run rate has helped. His two best homer seasons in LA have, have been his last two. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if he's going to reach a point where he just turns into latter day Jim Tomey. Uh-huh. I don't know, four years plus four and a half years 700's not no, that wouldn't surprise me that much. right i mean it's yeah. it's totally possible that he just completely falls off a cliff his injuries act up again maybe he has to retire early or he is retired early or he just becomes a part-time player so if that happens he won't get there but if he can just kind of keep going along as he has, I mean, he's he's going to get worse, but I would think 700 is within reach. Yeah. I don't know if it's the most likely how much, outcome. Yeah, I but, don't know how much beyond that is. Yeah. I'd go 702. Uh-huh. Okay. I, I wonder reasonable. also if he's close, like they put him in the lineup more. He, 
or he like hangs around for an extra year to get to 700. Like, I don't know if Pujols himself is motivated to mm-hmm. that extent by round numbers. Cause you're certainly not, but <laughs> right. And I guess it depends if the angels are still bad at that point. Cause uh, will they still have control of trout in Pujols last year under contract? Or? I don't think so. I think trout is through 2020. So, uh-huh. so Mike Trout <laughs> will be a free agent one year before Pujols. will. okay. Well, hard to say what the angels will look like. Like that far in advance, but at forty I mean, there's one nobody, year old, forty two year old, breathing Poodles. down his neck right now. <laughs> no. Like they spent their their first round pick last year on a, a catcher who they moved immediately to first base, and uh, he's not. I don't think he's chomping at the bit to to replace Pujols right now. All right, well, we will be back with another episode on Thursday. Talk to you then. change. The weather changes, your mood definitely changes, Albert Pujols' production changes. So why lock yourself into plans that might change? With Hotel Tonight, you don't have to, because you'll get incredible deals on awesome hotels even at the last minute. Booking on Hotel Tonight gives you the freedom and flexibility to play things by ear while knowing you'll score a great price and a great place to stay. So download the Hotel Tonight app to find seriously amazing deals now.